while the orchestra is departing, I just want to encourage you, if you don't read the ta table talk, uh, we, offer, we provide that for you uh, until they run out. We, I think we do 30, I think, or something like that. But uh, this month is on the theology of the Christmas hymns, and it's excellent. And the, the Christmas hymns are loaded with theology. You know, born to give a second birth. Uh, Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Just great, great lines. And so this issue of Table Talk is excellent. So I commend that to you. Uh, they're out there in the foyer if you want to pick one up. Okay. Uh, our gospel reading today from uh, the Gospel of John. We continue in John chapter 3. Uh, we've just completed the conversation uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, about being born again and about God so loving the world that he gave his only son. And now the focus shifts to John the Baptist in verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. Love the turning of pages. We had a one of our new member candidates mention that in their meeting with the elders. Uh, one of the reasons they love this church is they love to hear the pages turning when the Bible is opened. And I'm um, looking at that person right now. So, uh, amen. That is a beautiful, beautiful sound. John chapter 3, we'll start at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptized at Adon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Don't you love that? In just a few minutes, we'll be rejoicing greatly at the bridegroom's voice as the word is preached to us. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then verse 30, John says this, and this is my prayer for all of us. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our sermon text is from Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I mean, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. That's why I had 7 in my mind. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And I believe Justin's title is Christmas from Jesus' Viewpoint. Uh, something like that. He'll correct me if that's not it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the old, the old covenant, the Old Testament system of sacrifices, it doesn't work. Not permanent. Temporary. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered 
Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So in other words, instead of doing away with, the, with our sin, the old, the old covenant, the old system was a reminder of our sin. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, that's Christmas, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is God's word. You can be seated. Good morning. Um, just a confession. I feel like my heart could just explode. <laughs> you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just so thankful. Uh, words can't express how much I love you guys. What a blessing to be here. Uh, what a blessing to be saved. Just this is, uh, this is a season we culturally call Christmas. At the heart of it is just we're celebrating something that we celebrate and should celebrate every second of every day of every year, right? The plan of God, that, that God came, Jesus, the incarnated Son of God, came to rescue us, to save us from our sins, to bring us to be with Him forever. But just to, to get to emphasize that in this special way around this holiday season and to get to be here with you celebrating Jesus, glorifying God, listening, hark, Listen, pay attention to, heed, hark, the song these, the angels were singing, right, over that field of shepherds that night, right, glory to God in the highest, right, and coming with that, with that angelic message that Christ, a Savior, is born to you this day in the city of David. Pay attention Heed that. Be reminded, all right? Listen to that message they're singing. And I agree with Butch, and I was going to echo that anyway. If you haven't picked up this month's little Table Talk magazine uh, with daily devotions and articles, there are some left. I saw them coming in. The Theology of Christmas Hymns. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful study, and I think would be very edifying and encouraging to you. But uh, let's, um, let's just pray with me one more time as we come to this passage, as we come to this, as we come to the word of God, let's just pray once more that our hearts will be ready and in tune uh, just to learn, to grow, to be taught, and to be conformed more to the image of God and to see with even greater clarity these wondrous truths, right, fulfilled in the mission of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to come and to bring salvation, uh, undeserved unmerited, gloriously and perfectly brought to us, uh, delivered by the Son of God. So let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for our time together this morning. What a blessing to be here. What a, what a joy to be saved, to know, Lord, that we are sinners, that we in every way deserve only wrath and condemnation. The wages of sin is death. 
and we are all born with that, and we all wear it, and we are powerless to do anything about it in and of ourselves, and without you, completely hopeless. But light has dawned, and all the way back from the fall, as we'll see and be reminded of briefly this morning, uh, you made a provision, you made a promise that, that you would still maintain your purpose to have a people for yourself. And so you have gone to great lengths and done what was impossible for us and for the blood of bulls and goats or any of the old covenants of promise. They were powerless, but you have come and done what is necessary if we were going to be saved. And you have brought to us forgiveness. You have brought to us your righteousness. You have done it so perfectly and so gloriously. And here we are today. With, with changed hearts, with hearts made of flesh, hearts alive to you because of the work you have done in us and the work you have done for us. So Lord, what a, what a joy and blessing to be here celebrating that, studying that, talking about that in fellowship, singing to one another these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What a, what a joy, what a, what, a great, uh, what a great blessing to sing these great themes, these resplendent themes that are ours because of Christ. So Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that you will give us attentive hearts and ears as Ryan prayed, and Lord, that we will just, uh, that we will uh, be focused and that you will just renew our understanding, renew our minds and our hearts to all, to get, to grasp all the more uh, what you have done for us. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So last year, uh, Butch preached uh, just, a, a, just what I thought was just a great series uh, uh, this Advent season, this time last year in December, on uh, looking at just the whole story. Let's look at Christ coming in the big picture, this the meta-narrative, if you will, of the Bible, and just see where from creation to the fall, through the time of the patriarchs, the kings and the prophets, right? It was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, right? To, to send forth his son, Jesus. And there was a great summary statement. I forgot who he quoted, but there was a great summary statement for that series that, that Jesus came, right? To slay the dragon and to get the girl, Right? It's a popular theme in, in our stories. It's inherently something that we as humans love in the stories we read and the movies we watch because there, there's something hardwired in us right? that points to that paradigm, right? that creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Right? So we love those stories. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Right? All the way back in Genesis 3.15, it was promised and foretold in, in right on the hills of the fall, Adam and Eve had disobeyed they did not heed the voice of the Lord. They did not honor him, right? But they, they deliberately disobeyed him. But right, right during the, the midst of, of the, the consequences that were coming out to Adam, to Eve, and to Satan, God made a promise in the curse to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. All right, so uh, with that in mind and as a backdrop, all right, and by the way, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that series if you have, if you have time. It would be worthwhile. But with that as a backdrop, I want to remind you that, listen, the coming of Christ is not some unrelated or disconnected dispensation in redemptive history. Jesus' incarnation, his coming to take on a body, all right, 
his life, his death, his resurrection is at the very heart of the great meta narrative of Scripture. From the creation and fall of Genesis all, to, all the way to the consummation of all things in Revelation, God has orchestrated and revealed his plan to create, to redeem, to save, and to glorify a people for himself through, and I had fun with this one, they just kept, they were just flowing, through the serpent crushing, wrath absorbing, law abiding, sin bearing, curse reversing mission of the son of God. That's what he came to do. Uh, this resplendent thing just pulses throughout the whole narrative of the Bible. Uh, William Dumbrell in, in his book, The End from the Beginning, Okay, a book on what we term, you know, if you're studying this as a theme, biblical theology. Uh, he said, quote, at the heart of the Bible is the overriding presupposition that the rich diversity of Scripture all serves its profound unity. The entire Bible is moving, growing according to a common purpose and towards a common goal, end quote. And then along the same lines, uh, T. Desmond Alexander said, quote, by providing a closely matched beginning and end from the garden to the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, okay, by providing a closely matched beginning and end, the opening chapters of Genesis and the final chapters of Revelation undoubtedly frame the biblical meta story. So if you want to know where God's plan ultimately is going, then simply read Revelation 21, the new heavens, the new earth, the glory of God, all right, just, just covering his people, a people for himself, okay? In Genesis, God creates a people for himself and in his image, Adam and Eve, he called them to be fruitful, to expand the garden, to walk with him, to fill the earth with his glory and splendor. And as you know, they failed, they failed miserably. But listen, but God's plan certainly did not fail, okay? As we stated, he made that promise in Genesis 3.15. And on the contrary, his predetermined plan progressed perfectly. From the promise in the garden through all the eras of the patriarchs, the judges, the kings, the prophets, there is a phrase you'll find over and over and over where God says something along these lines, that I will be their God. They will be my people. We see it uh, multiple times in scripture. I just quickly found 10. I'm just gonna, let's just look at four real quick and just see how this just spreads the expanse of the scriptures. Back in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus 26, 11, we read God saying, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? That's an amazing promise in light of the fall, in light of not only Adam and Eve's, but just now at this point, all the sin, all the disobedience, all the rebellion. And here's God making this unbelievable promise. And not just in the Pentateuch, uh, how about in the prophets? Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There it is again in the prophets. How about the New Testament? Let's consider uh, the epistle of 2 Corinthians 3.16. 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. And I will be their God. And guess what? You got it. And they shall be my people. All right. And then finally, got one more at the very end, Revelation 21, all right, one through three. I'm going to just turn there and read the passage. You can turn there with me if you want, or you can just listen. Revelation 21, one through three. Here's where all this is going. All right. So be encouraged and, and, and just be blessed this morning. Revelation 21, one through three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So that's where this is going. And if you're a believer in Christ and you've been blood-bought, you are, you are a Christian, then that's who you are and that's where we're heading. So um, to make this happen though, God had to act. God had to step in and do something. He had to take care of this great problem of humanity. God is a just judge and a righteous God. He does not sweep sin under the rug. I'm not worried about that sin. No, that's not in his nature. All right. He can't just say, you know, I'm just going to let them all into heaven in spite of their sin. No, he's a righteous judge. What, what judge would you want to see on earth? Look at some hardened criminal who was murdered or pillaged or done all kinds of evil and said, I'm a loving judge, just go free. No, you, you know that justice is right. You know that a criminal all right, gets what he deserves. And God is the most just judge in the universe. And he gives what is deserved, right? Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have had to have come and died. Christ dying on the cross is just, is just is great evidence all right, and a great reminder of God's holiness, all right, not just his love, but his holiness. He's maintaining his righteous standard. So how is God then to walk with a people who were rebellious, who were sinful, who were separated from him? It's a major dilemma. Sin that we're born with all right, is a major dilemma. It's driven a great wedge of separation, a great chasm, if you will, because we are by nature objects of wrath. And we are enemies of God, according to the scriptures. So how then is God to walk with his people, to be their God? How? Well, to have a people for himself with this great gaping, from our perspective, unbridgeable enmity that our sin and rebellion has caused against the holy sovereign God of the universe, for that to happen, then that gaping chasm had to be bridged. A great dragon had to be crushed. A great curse had to be reversed. And a great light had to come and shine in our utter darkness. And God has acted. And that light has come. Listen to Isaiah 9 and 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, us, on them has light shone. That light has come. And I want to explore that great shining light of Jesus with you this morning. And I want to consider afresh and anew with you the, the wondrous, magnificent, too good to be true plan of the Trinitarian God of the universe from ages past to save a people for himself, to be our God, and for us to be his people. I want to explore that with you this morning of Advent as we celebrate, and Butch was right, from Jesus's point of view. So kind of Christmas according to Jesus, if you will. And there are lots of takes. You could study the, the narrative of the coming of Christ from a lot of angles, and they're all wonderful. Mary's story is a, and, and kind of Christmas according to her is a wonderful study. Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, you know them, right? And, and, and you, you, you know the gist of, of probably pretty much all of them. But I want to look this morning, okay, and I want to consider Christmas according to Jesus. Now, to do that, we're not going to find it in the Gospels. And I know the sermon text is, that I've, I've selected is in Hebrews because it really builds the context for what's being quoted there. And what's being quoted there, we go thousands of years back and we go to the Psalms. Psalm 40 is what's being quoted in Hebrews 10, all right? And so that's where I want us to pick up. But, but with that in mind, and we will end up in Psalm 40 a little, but because it's mostly quoted here in Hebrews 10, uh, let's, let's, let's camp here for a little bit. So Hebrews chapter 10. Now, it says in verse 5, Consequently, consequently, when Christ came into the world, that, that's a conjunction, that's a transition here. Something, there's a consequence that's happened, okay? Um, and and we're, gonna, we're gonna talk more about that, but we just see here that something was amiss, something was insufficient. And because of that, as a consequence, Jesus came, okay? And we, we, uh, we see right off the bat that when Jesus was in heaven, he's eternally existed, all right, that a body was prepared for him. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in advance. And then skip to verse seven. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. So the first point from our, our text today I want to see, and we got three points, and I'll just go on and share them with you. Here's where we're going this morning. Jesus came with a predetermined purpose. He was on a mission. Point number two, he is the only one fit or capable of completing that mission. And number three, he willingly and joyfully delighted to do this mission. So those are, the, those are the three points from our text. And that's where we have to jump to Psalm 40 because verse 8 in Psalm 40 isn't quoted here, but we're going to look at it. So right off the bat, we see the divine uniqueness of the humanity of Jesus. Unlike any other human being, Jesus already existed before he became a man. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, made a predetermined choice to take on a human body, one prepared for him from eternity past, to complete a mission. I have come to do your will, he says, right? And, as, and that consequently is there. It's because of something in the past, 
Therefore, something in the future is resulting from that. All right? So in this, in this context, Christ had to come because something in the past was incomplete. Something was unsatisfactory, insufficient, if you will. And take a look at verses one through three. Butch read this, Pastor Butch read this, but let's look at it. For since the law, we're gonna see three problems with the law, three reasons just from this text that if we're gonna have salvation, Christ had to come. Why? For the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The law was, was, was not the essential thing. The old covenant was not God's ultimate plan for salvation. Just a shadow, just a pointer, pointing to some reality. Because you know how a shadow works, right? Kids, you know how shadows work. You see the shadow, right? But the shadow, it takes the shape of my Bible or of my hand, but that shadow is not the real thing, all right? There's a reality making that shadow, sorry. <laughs> Uh, my hand, all right? Well, listen, the old covenant is a shadow. It's pointing to Jesus, right? The temple, the sacrificial systems, right? And, and all that goes with the old covenant law was all pointing to Jesus. As Galatians says, it was, a, it was like a tutor that was pointing us to Christ, okay? Um, now, we see first that it's a shadow. Keep reading, and it says that it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What else could the law or the sacrifices not do? They could not make perfect. They could not make you perfect. And that's the requirement to be with God, by the way. You need perfect righteousness if you're gonna be in the presence of God, right? And the, the, the sacrificial system of the old covenant could not make perfect. It was a shadow. It could not make perfect. What else? Skip down to verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, to remove sin. It was a temporary covering, okay, pointing to Jesus. So what the law couldn't do as a shadow all right, it couldn't remove your sin and it couldn't give you a perfect righteousness that is needed, all right? So, so, so as good as the law is and as much as God used it, it's incomplete, right? Without Christ, the great fulfiller of, of the covenant and the law, right? So on account of this impossibility and the powerlessness of the law, and of the old covenant sacrificial system to remove our sin, to make us perfect and provide us righteousness. Therefore, a body you prepared for me, Jesus said. The Lord, you didn't delight in those things. Why? Because they're not, they're not serving the God's goal to have a people for himself to be their God. This chasm and this separation is still there. So Jesus says, a body you prepared for me and I've come to do your will. So before the first Christmas before the shepherds and wise men, before angelic announcements on the birth of Christ, before Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem, the Godhead had already made provision and orchestrated a plan for the incarnation of the Son of God with the expressed purpose of bringing salvation to his people, bringing that forgiveness and bringing that righteousness, okay? Um, by means of his life, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. 
In the angelic announcement to Joseph, we see that God himself had even already picked out a name, right? He's on a plan. There's a plan. He's on a mission. And God has even picked out a name for him. He told Joseph, uh, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He's on a mission. He will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 21. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us because only the only, okay, um, uh, because the only, on, sorry, because only the substitutionary blood of a perfectly divine man can remove sin and make perfect a people to dwell with God forever. And that dwells directly to point number two. So Jesus came with the mission, and he is the only being in the universe who could complete that mission and fulfill it. Christ alone is uniquely qualified to fulfill the redemptive plan of God, Okay. The law, the sacrificial system, powerless. We already saw that. What about another person? What about one of the great covenantal heads of the Old Testament? Noah. No. <laughs> Abraham. Bam. Moses. Nope. David. No. Sin. Disqualified to be our savior, to lead us to salvation. None of them. Okay, since then, what about some of the, the, the great pastors and theologians or the, just the great men and women like, who have been faithful uh, to Christ? Not qualified, okay? Uh, what about something within you? So not the old covenant law, right? Not anyone else, not any other person, and not something from within yourself, okay? There's no work you can do that would earn salvation, that would bring forth this mission of God to, to fulfillment for you to be his people. Nothing within you. The scripture is abundantly clear here. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, all right? One of the first Greek lessons I learned from Pastor Butch as a teenager in Solid Rock, you know, with the, with the youth group was that the Greek word all, you know what it means? All. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's easy. All right, I got that one. Um, so all have sinned. Every single person has sinned, and, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 goes further and says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, and then in verse 18 of Romans 5, and the one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. All right, we're all born in sin. We're all born under this curse. All right, there's none righteous, no, not one. Adam's original sin brought condemnation to all of mankind. We are all born separated from God and under that curse. David even recognized this when he penned Psalm 51.5. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So again, if salvation was to come, it would have to be outside the normal means of human conception. And so it was. Luke 1.35, the angel talking to Mary, he answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the son of God. Listen, the virgin birth, the immaculate and supernatural conception of the son of God in Mary's womb is no small thing. It's not debatable. It is essential 
okay? It, it, it's, it's the truth of God's word, one, but two, it is, it is what qualifies Jesus, what makes this possible in the wisdom and the, and the glorious plan of God, right? Now Jesus, think about it, all right? He's been, he's been divinely conceived. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, all right? And, and so Jesus's, her pregnancy with Jesus and Jesus's birth was the direct result of the Holy Spirit conceiving that child in her supernaturally, okay? But Mary's also human, so Jesus is the son of God and he's the son of man, all right? The virgin birth, the immaculate conception, all right, allows for Jesus to be, uh, have his divine nature, but also to take on a human nature. He's not the result of, of, of any kind of human intercourse or any kind of uh, human union. Matter of fact, the scripture is very clear that e- even after this announcement came, Mary and Joseph just, they, they just kind of, ref- they refrained, right? And so Jesus comes born of the Virgin Mary, so he's purely divine and he's also completely human. What a, just, what a wise God we have. What a, what a brilliant, what, what a brilliant plan, all right? And so God did what was necessary. So Jesus is unique in that he was conceived and brought forth by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus also, is also unique and fit and capable to be our savior because he alone has perfectly fulfilled every prophecy and promise concerning him. And though this sermon, the scope of our study this morning is not to study those prophecies, I think, Lord willing, we'll get to some of that next week, all right? But, but just note that Jesus, part of Jesus' uniqueness, think about it, he's the only person born who fulfilled all those prophecies concerning him. And then third, Jesus is unique in that not only was he born sinless, he remained perfectly sinless in every way, spotless, exhibiting perfect love for and submission to the Father for all his life in all things, loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly. Hebrews 4.17 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was born sinless, remained sinless. He's the sinless and perfect son of God. And that was necessary. And why no one else or nothing else worked for our salvation. So listen, consequently, I want you to look with me at two passages, two what I would kind of considering divine summaries of our Lord, who alone is fit and capable to be our savior. Um, Look at Revelation chapter five. As I read verses one through five. Revelation five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, absolutely no one was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll 
or to look into it. But then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the scroll signifying and just summarizing what we're talking about this very morning, this this salvific plan of God. No one in heaven or on earth worthy to accomplish it, to open this scroll. But behold, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the son of God and the son of man, he has conquered and he can open the scroll. He is fit and capable and he has done it. It's amazing. And one more right on the heels of that. So quickly turn to or listen to Philippians chapter two. Starting at, uh, it's our memory verse. As we were saying, I was like, oh, that's perfect. This is a great memory verse for, our, for us this month. Starting in verse five. Have this mong, mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God eternally, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him and him alone the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You ready? Remember in Revelation 5, who couldn't open, they looked across heaven, earth, under the earth. You'll see the same verbiage and language here. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus alone is fit, is capable of delivering the promise or the mission given in Psalm 40, okay? Um, Now, he came with the purpose. He's the only one capable of accomplishing that purpose. And number three, This is amazing, especially in light of what we just read. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even crucifixion on a cross. But here we have to look, all right, the, you know, Hebrews couldn't quote all of Psalm 40. It didn't quote verse eight, but I want you to just very quickly look back or listen to Psalm 40, the next verse in this messianic Psalm and in this messianic uh, promise. After verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me. Look at verse eight. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law was within my heart. Some translations use the word delight. I delight to do your will. The Hebrew word carries the idea of taking great pleasure in a thing. So just ponder that, this last point with me, just, just a little more time together here to ponder this point. And it's be- I don't know what's just so moving and beautiful about it. It's just beautiful because I know it's, as Christians, it's self-evident. Jesus came, he, he wanted to. The Father sent Jesus, he wanted to. All right, so I know it's kind of just, it's, it's evident, it's kind of embedded in this whole plan. But when I sing lines like what we just sang in Heart the Herald, Angels Sing, pleased as man with men to dwell, 
Jesus, our Emmanuel. I don't know, something just in the reminder of, he wasn't compelled by any, by any exterior force. What God does, he sovereignly and willfully chooses to do. And he sovereignly and willfully, and according to Psalm 40, verse 8, delightfully came to do this. And it wasn't easy. He didn't come to be pampered, right? He wasn't pampered in a palace. He didn't come to live the good life, to live his best life now, if you will. He, he didn't come for that. Listen, Isaiah, he knew good and well what he was coming into. When he said, a body you prepared for me, I've come to do your will. Listen, that has, and that has, and he, the Hebrews 10 author knows that as well, that has great implications of sacrifice, of a death, right, of a substitutionary atonement. That's what it's about. And that's what Jesus is willfully and delightfully and joyfully taking on, all right? Isaiah 52 and 53, it's very clear, all right, what the Messiah, would, what happened to the Messiah. He would be, I'll read off a few. He would be despised and rejected, he would be acquainted with grief and sorrow. He would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He would be wounded for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions. He would have stripes. He would be beaten. All right? So the mission of Jesus to take on a body was for the very express purpose of being able to die for us. That's, that's what had to happen, right? Blood and goats, uh, the blood of goats and bulls weren't cutting it. Jesus had to come and he had to die himself. So with that in his mind and fully aware of his mission, what does he say? I desire to do your will. That's my delight to do that, to take on this mission. Ponder anew the unbelievable wonder that it is that the eternal Son of God left the heights of glory and the immediate fellowship and presence of the Father and the Spirit to, to condescend himself to become a helpless babe born in a dirty stable to a, a poor, obscure couple, only to grow up to fulfill these prophecies, to face the rejection, to endure a crucifixion, and to absorb the full brunt of the fierce fury and wrath of God as an innocent man. Because remember, God is a just judge. Sin had to be dealt with. Sin has to be removed, right? And righteousness has to be given if you're going to be with God, if you're gonna be saved, if you're gonna be with him forever and ever, all right? And to do that, for Jesus to do this with a great eagerness and a desire just blows the mind and it melts the heart, right? Because at the heart of this, Jesus is greatly desiring all right, to obey the Father. That's a great delight to Jesus in and of itself. He's doing the will of the Father, and Jesus loves that. He said in John 4, all right, around the, uh, the, uh, the, the story of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, he told his disciples, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. That's what I feed on. That's what drives me. That's what energizes me. I want to do the will of the Father. So we know that was a desire to him, but also the desire of the Father and of the Trinitarian God, don't forget, we saw it all throughout Scripture, is to save a people for himself, to be our God and for us to be his people. So at the very heart of obeying and delighting to obey the Father is delighting to come and rescue his bride the delight in crushing Satan and undoing, reversing the curse, if you will, right? 
What, what a, and so Jesus, that's why he takes on the hardship, the pain, the suffering, the crucifixion, the separation from the Father he endured on the cross. That's why he endured it, right? He, he's delightfully and joyfully, and Hebrews 12 says so, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised its shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, all right? So, in executing the will of the Father, to die as your substitute, to embrace your condemnation, to absorb your punishment, and to impute his righteousness to you so that you can receive all his blessings, the glorious riches of his inheritance, that's his earnest desire. He wanted to obey the Father, and the Trinitarian God wanted to rescue you. He wanted to, is his delight. And why? What have we done? We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. It's his, it's his sovereign love. It's his great and awesome love. Consider just a few more verses with me this morning. You can just listen or make note of them, reminding you of God's sovereign willingness and desire to come to you and have you as his people. Zephaniah 3.17, listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness, with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Luke 15, seven says this, Jesus said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The joys of heaven are very much in tune with the salvation of fallen man. Isn't that beautiful, right? Uh, Hebrews 12, 2, we just said this. I won't read the whole thing again or share the whole thing again. But Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, this delight, this desire to accomplish this mission, he endured at the cross to obey the Father and to save you. That's why he despised the shame. That's why he endured it. In Matthew 8, 2 and 3, all right, listen to this. Uh, this is a man with leprosy coming to Jesus. And he came to Jesus, and he bowed down before him, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He knows he can do it. Jesus, are you willing to do it? And what did Jesus say? He reached out his hand and touched him, and he said, I am willing. And in light of all this, and in light of Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, and all the great and wondrous truths that just surround the Emmanuel, the coming of our Savior and King, just be reminded that he loves you. He loves us. And he is making us a people for himself, right? And just bask in that love and in the undeserved delight and exultant singing and glad joy that God has over you and over me and all his saints as his people. May the wonder of it all and may the wonder of the willing initiative of God to come to remove our sin, to give us his righteousness, may it fill your hearts and minds this Christmas season and beyond. I want to conclude, uh, just I want to read 
uh, this almost as a poem, the Charles Wesley hymn that, that, that Ty and the orchestra led and just love singing with you. Uh, listen to this and then we'll pray. Hark, the herald, the angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim, Christ our Savior is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, see the Godhead veiled in human flesh? Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us, what you continue to do for us. This is all you. Lord, we were and are helpless and powerless. We could not save ourselves. We had no system. We had no righteousness of our own. We had no means of being your people except for what you have done for us through Christ alone through faith alone, because of your grace alone, we have this, <laughs> this amazing salvation, this redemption, this, this blissful and, and glorious future in store for us because it's what you joyfully and sovereignly and majestically made for us that you have accomplished. Why should we gain from your reward? We cannot give an answer, but this we know with all our heart from your word that your wounds, your blood have paid our ransom, and now you have made us your people. We who were once not a people are now your people, and you will dwell with us, and we will dwell with you forever. The wonder and the, and the, and the glory of it all, may it, just, uh, may it just draw us, may it sanctify us, may it cleanse us, may our love for you grow even stronger. May our submission to you, our delight in your word, our obedience to you, Lord, I pray that it would all be renewed uh, in, in light of who you are, what you have done for us, and your Holy Spirit working within us. So, Father, we thank you so much, and we thank you for our time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.